Uh, maybe you didn't know, there was uh, many different kinds of games, obviously, in the Olympics, Olympics in ancient Greece. Uh, but there's one race that I learned about this week that was very unique to what you have to do. So not only do the, so it, it's a team of runners, it's a relay race, so not only do you have to win, uh, but simply winning is not the point of the race. You do have to finish first, but it's about how you finish rather than just that you finish. Uh, this race was called, and I'm going to probably butcher this word, uh, lampadromia. I don't know. It has the word lamp in it. That's very important to know. Uh, which The word means the torch relay. So what you did is each team received a torch. They had a concave mirror that they would use to reflect the sun and light, the, light your torches. You, you'd have a relay team, and the object was not just to win the race first, but you have to keep your torch lit as you're running. So it's not just about that you finish but it actually matters how you finish, that you finish with your torch still lit. There's a command in Leviticus chapter 6 regarding uh, the temple and what God required to have done. In Leviticus 6 verse 13, God said he commands that the fire in the temple be continually burning at all times. So that was to demonstrate that as the fire continues to burn, there's always heat, there's always light and fire there that God's presence is always literally there. He's always among us. That's the idea. So it is in the Christian life. We must continually burn. We must not go out. We must not fall through. We must continually burn for Christ. And some of probably Paul's most famous words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you know much about the New Testament letters, uh, they're not put in chronological order, meaning Paul probably didn't write Romans first. Like That's pretty clear. He probably wrote Galatians first. But if you know that, one of Paul's, likely his very last letter was 2 Timothy. And some of his most famous words are 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, where we think very, very soon before his death, very soon, he wrote this in chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. And if you're a Christian in the room this morning, is that not your desire? That no matter what happens in the world, that you just want to finish the race well. Not just finish. I don't want to just make it. I want to finish it well. I mean, consider this. Who, who in this room wants to be numbered among those who were once zealous for Christ? Yeah, I used to be. Do you want to be numbered in that? I don't think anybody does. It was Jonathan Edwards who said this, that lukewarmness in the Christian faith is is vile, and zeal is an excellent grace. Yet above all Christian virtues, this needs to be strictly watched and searched. What he's talking about is zeal in the Christian life is like that flame. It can easily go out. And it's something that we, if we're going to pay attention to anything in our life, it is your, your affections, your warmth, your zeal for Christ, because it, it can go out. And again, what Christian among us wants to be the lukewarm water that Jesus spits out. Do you want to be lukewarm water where Jesus says, can't even use you? I don't think anybody here wants to be that. It was zeal for God that consumed Jesus' life. It was zeal for Christ that made the apostles be fired like arrows into the book of Acts. That's what it was. So friends, the question must be asked is what consumes your life? Is Christ your goal? Is becoming like him and knowing him and looking like him your desire in life? I think it's pretty clear. The Bible makes it very clear that pursuing Christ now 
is the happiest soul thing you could do this side of eternity to be more like Christ. That to be Christ-like and to be happy are really the same thing, just different spelling. So therefore, as Paul is, remember, Paul in Philippians here, he's, he's in jail. He's not sitting in a desk chair in the office. He's in jail. And the imprisoned Paul, if you look at chapter 3, verse 10, this is what Paul wants. Of all things, he wants that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. And Paul understands that this is a fight, that the Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. It's a war with self. It's a war against lukewarm Christian cultures. It's a war against the world. It's a war against satanic influence. You could just name anything. The Christian life is a war. So therefore, my purpose in preaching is very simple. I hope to fan your flame. That really is it. Whether you have coals that are dwindling or you have fire that's well, I want it to grow. And I, that's my hope is to fan your flame, to love Christ more, that you pursue him more. It's pretty straightforward. And to do, in doing that, Paul in this passage has four essential steps to grow or for true Christian growth. And I hope you'll see them. Uh, they're very simple. They, they go in order. So step one falls then step two, then three, so you follow them. It is really the steps. So let's look at verse 12 together. First, the confession of a Christian. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, the first half. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. What is Paul? What is the this? So I've not obtained that. Well, what is the this? Well, look at, again, look at verse 10. It's very clear that Paul may know him, Christ, to become like Christ. So Paul is saying very simply, I've not become all like Christ that I want to be. I know Christ. But I don't know him as much as I should. Uh, I'm like him, but I'm not where I should be. So Paul knows that he is progressing. He has not been perfected. That's what he says. The great distance he has come in his, if you remember his autobiography in verses four through six, Paul's very clear who he used to be. And now as a jailed Christian, he's saying, I still need to be matured. This should probably be a humbling and encouraging thought for you that if Paul, who was, I think, arguably, arguably the, the greatest Christian to ever walk the face of the earth, if Paul wasn't finished maturing as a believer, how about you? It's humbling because Paul can say, man, I'm not even close. And we think, you're not close? You're in jail. You're far away? But also it's encouraging because it means, well, if he's not there, then I'm not, okay, I'm just like Paul. I can grow like Paul can grow. So it should be humbling and it should be encouraging because Paul knows that he's still fallen. So the only means by which Paul would reach perfection then is to be finally like Christ. The only way he would do that in this life is to continue pursuing Christ. There's something that you should probably know that's very important here is to be like Christ, to know Christ, to, to be perfect. That is God's standard. Look at verse 9 in Philippians chapter 3 and look at verse 12. So Paul talks about two kinds of uh, perfection that you need to understand. If you're going to be a faithful Christian, you need to understand these things. It's kind of a sidetrack here, but this is, if you don't catch this, the whole sermon just makes no sense. Look at verse nine. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So righteous in Christ is verse nine. And verse 12 says, but I'm not perfect yet. Okay, Paul, so which one is it? Are you righteous or are you not perfect yet? I thought you were righteous, right? So there's a distinction that needs to be made, right? Every Christian is both perfect and being perfected, right? So in Christ, you are declared righteous. That's, that's salvation. When you're justified, God looks upon you because of Christ, right? 
through the eyeglass of Jesus and says, righteous, perfectly righteous. That's called your positional sanctification. You're positionally perfect, right? But in the Christian life, you are not yet perfect. You're still growing in perfection, right? You are complete in Christ, but you're not yet completed. You're perfect, declared perfect, but you're not yet perfected. So who you are declared to be and who, are, who, who, who you're supposed to be are it's a vast chasm between them. I hope you see that. So by faith, we are in Christ, and by faith, we grow into Christ. And you guys all know this. A newborn baby is perfect. All their organs, all their fingers, hopefully, right? They're, they're a full human, but they're not fully grown, right? They're fully human, they're not fully grown. They're not fully mature. That's the Christian, right? You're, everything you, that you get in Christ, you have it at, at conversion. But you're not matured yet, right? You need to grow. The Bible speaks about this way all the time. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus talks about growing like a seed. It's the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. In Ephesians 4, he talks about being children and then being mature. In 1 Peter 2, he says that we should be like infants growing up into salvation. So there's a way where you're a baby Christian, you're supposed to grow up into salvation. So the question you should ask yourself this morning is, do I, like Paul, yearn for growth as a believer? Or perhaps the most deadly answer is this, or are you satisfied with your current level of Christian maturity? J.C. Ryle said it this way, that every Christian feels, we secretly, so this is, we don't talk about this out loud, we secretly wish we could have a vicarious Christianity and have everything done for us. To be a Christian, it will cost a man his love of ease. So friends, let us not be satisfied with our Christian maturity as of today. Because self-satisfaction is the death of all progress. If we are satisfied, you will never grow. And it's, it's a bucket of water on your torch. It just, well, I'm satisfied. Well, you're never going to grow. And a satisfied soul is a sick soul. Meaning if you feel no need to grow in Christ, your soul is sick. That's not right. You need to be, Paul's saying you need to be growing. The Bible's very clear. We all need to be growing. But here's the problem. It's very easy to feel satisfied, isn't it? It's easy to feel content in how we grow as a Christian, or maybe even worse, that we all have this issue. It's very easy to feel apathetic. I mean, I could grow. I should, but, you know, I mean, it is what it is. And then what does the Lord do? Well, he sends something to you, doesn't he? He sends an interruption, usually slow traffic. Your plans get frustrated. Your children scream. Your wallet goes, where'd my money go? Something happens, a difficulty, and what happens? Your flesh is awakened. You sin like crazy or in a second or whatever. It's like wind over hot coals, and you realize, wow, I'm really fallen. I just reacted like that to that. I, I did that. I guess I need more grace, right? It is a good thing that God does that to you, that he shakes you from the dust, right? As a church, we cannot have satisfaction be a climate in this room. It will kill it. Satisfaction is dangerous. Brothers, the mindset of what Paul said, not that I've obtained it or I'm perfect, is a work of grace that God works in us. You see the desire for more grace is a sign of grace in your heart. Do you see that? 
So friends, you, you should see that there's a land of opportunity before you as a Christian, as a church. You can increase in grace. You can overcome temptation. You can have a stronger prayer life. You have a strong Christ for weak Christians. Isn't that good news? So your first step should be to confess your need for more grace, and more grace will be available. So that's the first thing. You need to confess the, the confession of a Christian. Secondly, the motivation of a Christian. So, okay, I admit it. I need to grow. I'm not where I should be. How can, be motiv- how can I do this? What's the motivation? Well, Paul has two parts. Look at verse 12 again. <clears throat> first part, the pursuit. So not that I've obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So do you see Paul's zeal in the Christian life? He knows no obstacles. What does he say? I press on. I'm not going to sit me stagnant. I'm going to press on. All right, there's no bounding his heart. Just Paul's like, I have to press on. I'm in jail, but I'm going to grow, right? It doesn't matter. Though he is in prison, he's still pursuing Christ, which means for you, a closer walk with Christ is not far away. It's very near, right? It's very simple. Remember that Paul is in shackles. And I, I think our American brains get confused. How can Paul, who he's, he can't leave, he's stuck to a, a guard, he's in jail. How can Paul press on the Christian life when he can't go anywhere? He can't go to Bible study, make any sense. He can't go to church. Well, how does he grow? Well, friends, put it this way. The primary means of Christian growth is not in the doings, like the things you're going out and doing, but in the disciplines. It's not about location. It's about your consecration. Meaning this, let me pose a question to you this way. Because we have brothers and sisters. We have friends nearby and friends who are overseas, brothers and sisters who are persecuted, who have this exact question, or because of health. If you were physically unable to leave your bed, your room, or your home, what would your Christian life look like today? If churches were outlawed starting today, today's the last Sunday we could meet without having to be shot. Would your faith dwindle? Would it just be gone? Friends, never let Sunday be the only day that you hear from the word. It, you will fall. And sadly, our screen time swallows up most of our praying time, doesn't it? That stinking little brick we have in our pocket. I got it too. So do you see that the greatest threat to your Christian life, it's not out there. It's not the government. It's not taxes. It's not your neighbors. It's not traffic. It's not those things. It's me itself. I'm my greatest stumbling block. So pressing on towards Christ made Paul's prison like a palace. Hey, Jesus is basically next to me. He's here, right? I can pursue me because I'm next to him, right? So brothers, let me encourage you as a fellow laborer and a lover of Christ that may we learn together to bless the Lord for the shackles that he sends to us. He does send pain. The Lord does send us prisonments. He does send us affliction and difficulty. And that should excite you to run to Christ, not to run from him, like what Paul's doing. Charles Spurgeon said it in probably the most Charles Spurgeonist way. Anything is a blessing which makes us to pray. And that's true, isn't it? And so it is. God wields your life in his sovereign love to send you to him over and over and over. May we not neglect him. Friends, there is no saint in heaven now who regrets 
not pressing on, or I pressed on too much on earth. I should have been softer. There's no one like that in heaven. They all wish they would have done more, and they're happy where they are. So second, so first, that is the, the pursuit, and this is the motivation. This is what Paul's talking. Look at verse 12 again. Verse 12 is very long, and then we do continue, I promise. I see more than that, but verse 12 is so lengthy. I press on. Why? Because, verse 12, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you notice the word there? So if you remember um, elementary school grammar, you see the word because. What is the word because? Well, apart from every kid saying, hey, why do you do that? Well, because. Apart from that, what kind of word is because? I won't sing it for you, but it is a conjunction. And what is its function? It explains the reason, right? It's because this. Therefore, it's the reason. It's the explanation. So Paul's going to do this. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. A lot of commentators think Paul's talking about how Jesus appeared to him in the book of Acts. When Jesus came to Paul in Acts chapter 9, it wasn't like a, hey, Paul, it's me, Jesus. You want to become a Christian? It wasn't like that. It was explosive, right? I mean, he just literally blew Paul up off his horse and, ah, like he's on the ground crying and freaking out, right? It was violent. It was firm. It was strong, right? And since Jesus Christ pursued and seized Paul in that way, Paul says, therefore, I will pursue Christ in that way. I will seize after Christ. And friends, note the, the gospel order. You'll see what I mean here. Why do you pursue Christ? Note the order. It is not pursue Jesus, then he will make you his own. If you pursue Christ, then he'll make you his own. No, no, the, the, the Christian order is different, isn't it? It's because Christ has made you his own, Therefore, you can pursue him. Do you see that? Just like in the Old Testament, God saved his people out of Egypt. Now pursue me, right? It's not come after me and then I'll give you, and then I'll save you. Ten commandments and then then I'll save you. No, no, it's I'll save you. Now here's the law. Now you pursue me, right? So it's Christ-like because we are Christ-owned. That's the Christian order. And friends, what level of holiness or sanctification is required to belong to God? If you're in this room, you don't know that question. It's very important you understand it. What does God require for you to belong to him? Well, Paul just said it a while ago in verse 12. Perfection. Is there anybody in this room who would even say, yeah, I'm pretty close. Or actually, I am perfect. Well, we'd all snicker, wouldn't we? The good news, friends, is you in yourself cannot be perfect. That's what God requires. You cannot attain a level of cleanliness. It's not clean yourself up and then go to Jesus. We can't do that. That's an endless treadmill. I hate treadmills because you feel like you're making so much progress, you're just standing there running your legs out, right? Well, trying to clean yourself up morally is this treadmill. You're, just, you're, you're making no progress. You're just running in place. That'll discourage you. It will exhaust you, and it will lay you flat. But rather, Jesus Christ lived a holy, righteous, and perfect life fully to God and fully to his neighbor. And all that he's supposed to do, he, he achieved that for you. And the death, of, the death of Christ was for our unrighteousness, right? And his resurrection, his death pays our account, his, his resurrection secures it for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says it this way. He, God has delivered us, so he's moved us, he's transferred us, delivered us, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sins. So the way you can belong to God in holiness is not by performing enough. It's by trusting Christ. Christ performed for you. So if you've not done that, if you've not put your trust in Christ to be your holiness before God, you have no chance. But if he is your righteousness, you have nothing to worry about. He's achieved all of it for you. It's by faith in Christ, not by works. Therefore, look at Paul says, because Jesus suffered and died to make Paul his own, how can Paul not press on? If Jesus went that far for me, what is, what is Paul's logic? Well, there's no distance too far to go to Christ, right? If Jesus condescended that far for me and suffered that much for me, I can go to him. I should. He sees me. I should seize after him. I'm reading some sermons by a man named John Flavel. Yes, other pastors like to read other pastors' sermons. I don't know what's wrong with us. We just do that. We love it so much. This man's lived in the 1600s named John Flavel. He wrote this. Christ is so in love with holiness that the price of his own blood, he will buy it for us. How much he loves it, how much he loves you. So brothers, how grateful should we be that Jesus did not sit idly by in heaven? Yeah, just come up here. Just keep trying. He didn't sit idly by. How lovely is his pursuit of us? Jesus endured the cross to gather you. He didn't sit and wait. He pursued. So that, that, that's Paul's logic, right? How then could Paul befriend sin? He can't, right? How can Paul befriend idleness? How can he waste away in apathy? Friends, how can we befriend the very things that Christ died for? That's Paul's reason right there. Because Christ did that, I can't. I have to run, right? I can't be distracted. And Paul's motivation for the, for the Christian life then is it's the principle of ownership. Look at verse 12 again. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ owns him. I will pursue him. And we all know that ownership influences how you handle and treat property. For example, how do you treat your own home? You walk in, just throw your keys on there, drop the books here, wallet goes there. You kick the wall, ah, oops, my bad. You scuff the couch, ah, it's all right, right? Spill a little stain, I'll mix it up, right? It's okay. You don't clean it. You probably don't treat your home with this great degree of care and gentleness and, oh, watch out, you know, we don't do that. But say you were to stay a week at a palace of a king. How would you treat that home? Probably a bit different, right? Because you don't own it. A king, I mean, this is the king's. I'm not going to even walk with shoes. I'm going to take my socks off and wash my feet. I mean, you're, you're going to be paranoid, right? You're going to just sit real slow on furniture, put plastic wrap on it, right? Real gentle. Don't sneeze anywhere. Or how do you treat when you borrow someone else's furniture or borrow their tools or borrow their books? Do you walk in and go, here's the hammer. Just fire it. No, you go, you gently place down a hammer, right? It's a hammer. You put it, be careful, hammer, right? You're gentle because you don't own the hammer. Friends, this is the principle that stirs up Christian zeal. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, has been in my brain since we went through that chapter about a year ago. You are not your own. That's it. It's that simple, right? So therefore, your time, your life, your possessions, your breath, your calendars, your neighbors, your opportunities, your church are not your own. We don't own any of those things. And because Christ made you his own. Therefore, how should you steward everything that he owns? With care, with 
passion and pursuit are just, ah, it is what it is. Put it this way. If this church is not our own, how should we act, steward, plan, and operate in these walls? Thirdly, the sanctification. So there is the confession. That's the motivation that you're not your own. And here is the sanctification of the Christian. This is verses 13 and 14. Sanctification means becoming more holy, right? It's the word saint, you could say. So we're all saints. Sanctification, be more saint-like, be more Christ-like, right? This is what Paul's talking about. Verses 13 and 14. I got three quick steps, and I mean quick. First step, one purpose. Look at verse 13. Paul says, he repeats himself because he's a pastor, so he's got to repeat himself again, right? Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. If we could all be people of one thing, our Christian life would be much more simple, wouldn't it? So you, like a Christian, should be like a sword. You should have one point. And what is that point? Well, it's to be like Christ. Again, consider what Paul is saying. It's very complex, right? Because Paul was not just one thing. He was a preacher, a missionary, an evangelist, a disciple maker. He's a church planter. He was a pastoral trainer. He's an open-air preacher. He's a scholar. He's a brilliant, man. He's a writer, a theologian. He's an apostle for Christ, right? Paul had all these roles that he did. And yet he says, but there's one thing. Well, it sounds like a lot of things, Paul. Well, it's one thing. It's to be like Christ. So friends, let me put it for you very simply. If that is your one thing, all your other things will be done so much more smoothly, so much more wisely, and in a way that glorifies God. So consider what you have to do every single week. It's overwhelming to think about how to be a good friend, a sibling, a parent, a worker. It's, I have to do all these things? That's like 10 things, Paul. That's just things you're thinking about now. But Paul says, if you pursue this one thing to be like Christ all of your other roles will be taken care of. It really is that simple. Following the will of God for your life in all of life is to pursue Christ. God designed us to glorify him and to enjoy him forever, the catechism says. So it's very simple, right? J.C. Ryle again said it this way. A zealous man in religion is a man of one thing. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He's swallowed up in one thing. That one thing is to please God. It's very simple. So first, be a man of one thing. Secondly, second step, forgetting the past. Look at verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. It's a good phrase. This, 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 this whole week, this whole phrase has been in my brain. Forgetting what lies behind. If anybody had a past that would gnaw at them, would distract them, what would bother them, is it not Paul? You know, Paul's pre-conversion life was, I'm going to find Christians, throw them in jail, and kill them. I mean, that's a haunting life, right? If anybody had a, a gnawing past, it would be Paul. Friends, our past lives cannot upset our present life. The persecutions he did, the venom he had, the anger, the lostness, just the, the base sorrow that was in his life, they can't distract him. More than that, Paul can't even think of the good things that he's done. I got to forget those things too. So I wonder if in this room, if you have things in your past that occupy your heart, maybe it's failures. Man, I did that. 
Or maybe it's wins. Ironically, both those things can hang you up. Good things can hang you up. Bad things can hang you up. Let me explain why. A bad memory can haunt you, right? Man, I did that. I mean, it just sucks the life out, doesn't it? It just like, how to act that way? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? They haunt you. And good memories can halt you in a different way. Nostalgia can be, can be good, but what does it do? You just dream a lot. You just you never go for it. You just yeah, that was fun, man. And you just waste away. You're just you're thinking about what used to be, and it was good, and you're just stuck. You're living behind you, right? We all know that guy that talks about his high school baseball days. We don't care about it, right? It's done. Knock it off, right? It, it, he's just doing nothing. It's halt, halting him. In 1954, at the British Empire Games, it's a race that it's very famous. You can actually look it up on YouTube. It's from the 50s, but they have a pretty decent uh, um, video of it. It's still on film. It's very famous. It's called the Miracle Mile. It's extremely famous. It has the the two men who are the only two men on the planet to be able to run a mile in under four minutes, and they raced each other. That's quite the race. It's a British man named Andy Bannister and an Australian named John Landy. They're the only ones that could run a mile in under four minutes. And as they were running, Andy Bannister decided, on my third lap, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to say my strength. I'm going to slow down on the fourth lap. I'm going to go as hard as I can and pass this guy. That's the hope. Well, he was behind the whole race. And towards the end, the Australian, Landy, he looks with just seconds left. He hears him, he looks behind his shoulder, his left shoulder, and Bannister passes him on his right shoulder, beats him by five yards. It's like, it's just a couple seconds. I mean, the last five yards he gets beat, loses the whole race because he looked back. For one, I mean, for one second he looked back, he he lost the whole thing. The loser. All that just to look. I mean, he was interviewed after and he just said, I just looked one time. He's mad about it, right? one, One look cost him the whole race. Friends, forget what lies behind. If it's sinful, confess it to Christ and see it left at the cross, paid for. You've been cleansed. Move along, right? Press on, rather. If it's good memories, let them remind us, but don't let them blind us. It's good, but don't let them stop you. Today, God has called you to step over the line, to walk forward. That's enough. That was good. Press on forward. That's, That's the call for today. And that's the third step, going forward. So first you need to have one purpose. For, you need to forget the past and now go forward. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's very simple. Paul is continually looking forward and toward. <laughs> toward. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm tired, apparently. He woke up each morning to press on, right? Every day was a new slate, each day a new opportunity to become more like Christ. So he's thinking, yesterday I blew it. Well, okay, it's done, it's been repented of. Today, I'm not gonna do what I did yesterday. I must press on. He must strain forward. He is to be, if he's to be of any use, Paul is saying it's better to wear out than to rust out. He can't be stuck. He must live as if today counted for Christ because it really does. So friends, you too must press forward to the goal, the prize of Christ. The call of God is, he just says it right here, it's upward. It's, it's not about things down here. It has to do with that, but it's, 
upward. It's away from these things and it's upward to God in Christ. Earthly things will tie you down. So here's the command. If you have a heartbeat in this room, God calls you to pursue him. Very simple, right? God calls you to win a prize, to gain exceeding joy. His call is costly, but it is satisfying. So let me just be very straightforward here. The call of God in Christ is a weighty call. It's not easy. It's a narrow way. Pursue Christ. Leave the world. Fall after him. You will look annoying. You will look too committed. You will look obnoxious. You will look like a weirdo. Requires a sharpened mind, a a wartime mentality, meaning this world is not our home. This is hostile ground we're standing in. The call of God in Christ means that Jesus is infinitely more valuable. His word must be honored. Living down here for an upward call is very difficult. There's the assault of apathy. There's world's distractions that we all have. Our deceitful flesh and the devil are not neutral towards you. But what does God offer? Here's my son. He's infinitely worthy. He's better than anything you could ever have. Here's Christ. Pursue Christ. I mean, he's not offering you anything that's not worthy. It's Christ, right? It's infinitely desirable. It's your prize. All your callings then are eclipsed by this call of God to pursue your prize. And your efforts will be rewarded. There's no higher calling than to pursue Jesus Christ. There's no more difficult call than to pursue Jesus Christ. So I wonder, friends, what keeps you from going forward? I read a book recently about, if you know who Bear Grylls is, he's that crazy man versus wild guy. I like him. He's just a nut. But I love that man. He climbed Mount Everest, and I found a a story, not about him, but about Everest. It's kind of related to him. He he, He briefly mentions it, but a group of men attempted to climb Everest years ago. And they pressed on against cold and wind and blizzards and, of course, avalanches because could it be any more difficult at Everest? I mean, these people are, these stories are crazy if you read them. And what you do is you can only go so far. And then every day when you go far, you got to actually backpedal because it's too, the air is too thin. You got to backpedal and get accommodated to the air below. So they set up camp, these two men, these group of men at about 2,000 feet. So, you know, not very high. And two of these men, Mallory and Irvine, they pressed on the next day, and they were expected to return in about 16 hours. So they'll be back. They'll have gone all day, but they'll, they'll press on, reach the top, and come back. But they never came back. Their bodies were not found. The official record simply said this. When last seen, they were heading towards the summit. Is that how you want to live? Worse yet, I don't know. But he's heading towards Christ. Isn't that how you want to be remembered? Seeking the prize? Today, maybe your prayer should be something like this. Lord, help me to press forward. Lord, help our church to press forward. And then you strain forward and you run for Christ. It really is that simple, isn't it? Fourth and lastly, the realization of the Christian. We have a confession, right? I need to grow. We have the motivation, I belong to Christ. We have the sanctification, there's three steps in that. And lastly, Paul says, the realization of the Christian. Look at verses 15 and 16, we'll close it with these two verses here. Verse 15, 
Let those of us who are mature think this way. So the Apostle Paul reveals what a mature Christian is. So if you had to think, what does a mature Christian look like? Someone who thinks that guy is godly. What does that look like? Well, a mature Christian is actually a maturing Christian. If you, if you were to go to the doctor and tell him, I have no desire to eat or to drink water or to sleep or to rest or to work or to live, would he say you're sick or healthy? If you didn't know, that's extremely, extremely sick, right? So a desire to not want to grow is a sick. It's, a, it's not a good health, spiritual health desire. The call of the Christian to grow and to desire, Paul says, to think this way is what God requires. We typically measure Christian maturity in different ways. We look at years of church attendance or events served at, but the Lord doesn't look on the outward. He looks on the what? Heart. It's the heart. The heart beating for Christ and seeking him today. That's maturity. That's a mature Christian. It's not just what you do. It's are, are you pursuing Christ? Do you want to mature? That means you are a mature Christian. And Paul says, you, you need to think this way. This is the right way to think. He just says it very clearly. Many of us can conjure up good excuses. Me included, I'll be front in that line. Of the state of our Christian life. It's maybe the season of life we're in, schedule conflicts, tired, traveling plans, workloads. But as I've been told before, well, that dog won't hunt. That ain't going to do it. Doesn't matter, right? That dog won't hunt, friends. What then are we to do? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Think over what I say for, because, conjunction, for the Lord will give you understanding. So that's what Paul says in verse 15. God will reveal it to you. If you don't think that way, think that way and God will give it to you. He'll reveal that to you. It's very simple. It is God who sanctifies, who reveals, who, who grows us, who helps us when we're stunted, who encourages. We run, he brings. We, we strain, he supplies, right? We seek, he delivers. And verse 16 concludes this way. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul knows there are no, there are no shortcuts or gimmicks or tricks. There's nothing new to become like a Christian. There's nothing new. The acorn grows into a mighty oak the same way. Lots of time and water and sun, right? Every MLB player hits off a tee still. Every quarterback in the NFL, they still play catch. Every NBA player still shoots free throws, except for the centers apparently, because they can't hit a free throw. We should therefore examine the old paths that brought us to Christ and see them with fresh eyes. There's nothing new. Hebrews 12, it says this, verse 3. Consider him. That's it. Consider him who endured from sinners such as hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you consider Christ, you will hold true. So friends, God has promised extraordinary holiness through ordinary means. It's nothing flashy or hip or updated. It's you read and you commune with Christ. You commune with him through prayer. You consider him through his word. You Obey him. You conform to him in obedience. If you want to know Christ, it's on his terms. It really is that simple. To close, I want to read you a hymn. Many of you in this room probably do not know this hymn. It's written by John Newton. I don't think I've ever sang it before at a church my entire life, but it's that seven stanzas. I picked four, okay? Uh, this tells a story, and I hope you'll hear it. It's very, very encouraging. John Newton writes this. 
I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It's a good, good prayer. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy warm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Let's pray.